Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Tamor, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Today we have, a, we have a couple of special guests joining us this episode. We have uh, our cousin Shaz and his wife Zara. Do you guys want to say hi? Hi everybody. Hi everyone. Uh, so Shaz is actually uh, quite a big deal around here. Shaz was a, a role model of mine growing up and he changed my life trajectory when I discovered that he'd studied maths at university. I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. That was like the thing that opened my mind uh, to being able to study maths. So this is, uh, this is that, Shaz. Yeah, it was uh, interesting seeing that on uh, Ali's Instagram. Uh, and I was like, whoa, I'm being mentioned on here. Uh, that's, that's new. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, apologies if I didn't get your consent before mentioning you uh, on, the, on the Instagram. Oh, no problem at all. Fantastic. <laughs> all right, so... Um, Look, today we're doing a part two about uh, being nicer to kids. We didn't have an episode last week. Sorry about that. Ali was being lazy. Uh, but the week before that, we were talking about uh, how we're actually, we actually treat kids kind of immorally. And this is a follow-up to that. Um, before we get into like the follow-up, though, uh, I'd be curious to... So, Charles, you listened to the episode uh, from two weeks ago, right? Uh, yes, I listened to that one. So that was the one where uh, I think the first half was about some other stuff Ali's being unemployed and stuff like that yeah and then the next half was uh, about uh, how to treat kids or how kids are treated in society yeah exactly so i think i think like the main point i was trying to make was that we just don't really take kids seriously is that do, how, do you how, what do you remember from your childhood and how you were sort of treated um, um before we get into charles's childhood we have a very important message ah ah that message is from our sponsors this week, which are Skillshare. Indeed. Tamor, what is Skillshare? Oh, Charles, uh, what is Skillshare? <laughs> uh, Skillshare is the best place to learn anything online except for maths and computer science, apparently. Uh, so uh, what is it? You can learn about cooking and video editing and you can do Ali's class on something. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> that, that, that was pretty good. Yeah, as Charles says, Skillshare is the best place to learn anything online. It is a very reasonably priced monthly subscription. It's less than $10 a month for a, um, you know, the annual premium membership. And on Skillshare, you've got thousands of classes on all sorts of things from creativity to entrepreneurship to even cooking. I learned how to cook a mean roast chicken on Skillshare. Um, the best part is if you go to skillshare.com slash not overthinking, you can check out my own classes. There's four of them so far. Filmed a fifth one yesterday and we've got a sixth one being edited as we speak. So that'll give you a two month free trial so you can watch hours and hours and hours of my content. And Tame actually features in some of the classes, especially the ones where we talk about productivity. Isn't that fun? Great stuff. Great stuff. So uh, head over to skillshare.com slash not overthinking to get your two month free trial and then $10 a month afterwards. It's sick, totally worth paying for, much better for you than Netflix. Was that all right? Sounds like a good summary. I might have to actually start using it now. <laughs> nice. Right. So Charles, back to your childhood. What, what do you remember about like how, whether you were taken seriously, do you remember any like particular interactions or sort of stories? So um, I'm actually someone who um, I, I consider myself to have quite a good memory for when I was a child. So I can remember quite well back to 
almost before I could talk. So this is around the age of uh, two years old, perhaps. Damn. And um, so uh, I remember a lot of things about kind of the, the layout of the house we used to live in, for example, and um, the kind of relationships that I had with people. Uh, I lived in quite a big family. So um, uh, as, as I still do, w- which was with um, my parents, and then my mum has so many siblings. Uh, so th- all of them were around. Yeah. And um, I think the I, I think there were two main um, two main ways in which I was treated. So <laughs> uh, th- there were there were some some ways in which I was probably taken more seriously than I would have expected to have been. Oh, okay. And in other ways, probably less. Um, and uh, it depended on the situation and the circumstances at the time. Um, cool let's hear about it. so in what kind of context were you treated more seriously than you think you deserved um i wouldn't say more seriously than i deserved i'd oh, say okay, okay. i'd say more seriously than children tend to be taken. ah okay interesting so um i often used to have a lot of questions when i was young about the most pointless random things ever and um, my mom always gives the example of things like I just ask her questions like, mom, can you see that tree? How many leaves do you think are wrong? <laughs> and, um, you know, whereas most parents would just be like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, or, or they or they just, you know, give a, give a stupid answer like lie and say, oh, yeah, there are a million leaves on that tree or something. Right, yeah. um, my mom tended to have this attitude that, I can't just straight up lie. I have oh, okay. to, or I can't just dodge the question. Yeah. We ha- I have to say, well, I don't know, but this is how you would find out. Yeah. So um, maybe there are a certain number of branches on the tree. Maybe each branch has, I don't know, 20 leaves on it mm. or something and, and, uh, and work <laughs> it out that way. And I thought <laughs> Great that... Great Fermi estimation technique. <laughs> yeah, and I thought that was really... I th- looking back on it, I think that was probably really good for me because it meant that... Um, I wouldn't feel hesitant in trying to amass more knowledge about the world later on. Right. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, you know, if I'd have asked a question like that, yeah, I don't know if I would have been uh, entertained quite as well. I feel like for me, the circumstance, I feel like I never really asked questions like that. But it was only when preparing for, you know, the Cambridge interviews, <laughs> the, you know, the classic uh, chestnut of, you know, can you estimate how many molecules of oxygen there are in the room? I was like, oh, OK, that's interesting. What if we do this and this and that? And, or things like, you know, what's the volume of a human head? I feel like those are the sorts of questions you were asking when you were a kid, You're way ahead of the times. Um, well, some questions like that, but also... Um you know how kids often have this habit of they'll ask a question, you'll give an answer, and then they'll say why, mm. and then you'll give an answer, and then they'll just keep asking why, and to the point where they're probably not even interested in the answer anymore. They're just trying to be <laughs> annoying now. Um, but uh, I don't think I ever got the uh, sort of, oh, just be quiet now. Okay, yeah. You were never, like, dismissed for asking questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, nice. It was... It was a very much encouraged that uh, I should ask questions, find out more about the world and just how things work in general. That's good stuff. Zara, what kind of questions were you asking when you were younger? Can I watch more TV and not go to sleep? Can I skip school? <laughs> Do you feel like you were taken seriously? <laughs> no. No, I wasn't. Damn, okay. Um, so, Tamer, with, with your new stance on morality, do you feel Zara should have been taken more seriously when asking, mm-hmm. can I watch more TV and not sleep and just and skip school? 
Yeah, so I think I said this in the last episode as well. And in having conversations with friends about this topic in the past couple of weeks, I think uh, you can make a mistake in conflating taking someone seriously and uh, sort of doing whatever they want or whatever they're asking. So like you can take a child, you know, if a child says, I don't want to go to school today, you know, I think there are ways to respond to that, which recognize a child as a, as a, as a person and in, in which you take the child seriously even though the end result might still be that the child is going to school. So I think taking someone seriously and taking children seriously is sort of a separate thing from like, uh, once again, like the practical aspect of what the end result is, which is that the child probably goes to school. And so when it comes, <laughs> and so for example, to take Zara seriously in that example, you would have, as a parent, you would have sat her down and explained the reason as to why she had to go to school tomorrow or, or, or kind of find out her ideas, concerns and expectations as to why she was saying, I don't want to go to school. Yeah, potentially. I don't know. Look, I don't want to get too bogged down into that stuff. I'm I'm not going to try and opine about what makes good parenting. Um, and I think it depends on the person. It depends person to person. I'm not too interested in like getting bogged down into like, here is how you should actually respond to your child when they ask question X. But I think that taking things seriously is something uh, separate to that, which we can opine on and should. Uh, and that's kind of what we're doing here. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Charles, you mentioned, you said there was like two categories. There were times when you were taken more seriously than you think the average kid would have been. Like when you're asking how many leaves there are on a tree. Well, when do you think you were taken less seriously than, than average or less seriously than, than you would have liked? Um, I think I would have been taken less seriously in the uh, context of autonomy. Now, there's an obvious reason why kids don't necessarily have the same amount of autonomy as someone much older than them, because they, you know, might make worse decisions. Uh, You obviously, you know, if a kid wants to play near a window uh, on a high apartment building (laughs) floor, then you would not give them the autonomy to do that. But I think there are a lot of situations where there isn't a specific correct answer about how you want to live your life or how you want to um, approach any particular situation it's a lot down to taste and preference and just what happens to suit the individual and what they're feeling at the time and I think pretty much every child including myself um, parents often tend to think that their way is the right way Mm. even when there isn't a correct way or a wrong way to do it so for example if a child is having some food um a parent might say okay you've got to eat this this is this is what you have to eat for dinner you're having i don't know rice but uh suppose the child wants to have noodles maybe they like noodles more now it's not that one is objectively better than the other for the most part they're the same thing but um i feel like a lot of parents would think that um, giving that level of autonomy to a child isn't necessary um, mm. because um, they it is kind of their their view of what's normal or preferable or yeah. more tasteful in this situation. Yeah. Or e- even if it's something like what a child wants to wear that day. Mm. Now, it doesn't really make a difference. Yeah. Like, literally, you can go out and nobody in the world cares what you're <laughs> wearing. But um, I think some parents would think that their taste matters more than mm. the child's taste in that situation. Zara, you're shaking your head. No, I think parents think that that's a reflective sort of of them, how they are as a parent. If their child is hasn't showered or isn't clean 
or is in wearing proper clothes. Ah, uh, so you think the parents are are not necessarily li- limiting the child's autonomy about hey, you have to wear mm. this nice clothes. It's more about like you have to wear these nice clothes to the party so that the hosts don't think well, I'm I, I'm a bad parent that I let you do random stuff, you know. <laughs> Oh, I don't take care of my kid. Right. Um, but does it make you a bad parent if you let your kid do whatever they want in that sort of situation? I mean, if your kid is going to, I don't know, if they're, if they're 20 years old and they're going to their first job interview, then, of course, you would say to them, no, wearing your pajamas to this interview is not a good idea. Yeah. But if they're, I don't know, they're five years old and they want to go to a random auntie's pun party wearing a dinosaur suit then mm. you know who's really being hurt by that i i don't think anybody i don't know like i feel i've had this situation happen a lot more recently um famously anytime i come home for the weekend uh, and we end up having these these like last minute like lunch parties and stuff to go to uh and usually i don't bring decent clothes i bring kind of my jeans and my t-shirt and my ripped <laughs> trainers because I, I have no other shoes and my and my mom will often gets annoyed that I'm not wearing proper clothes to go to this fancy party. Well, it's not in fact, you know, just to go to someone's house. Possibly because she thinks that it would, it's a sign of disrespect or something for me not to wear proper clothing. And therefore, in that context, even though I'm not a kid anymore, my, my autonomy is, uh, you know, held up against the potential to disrespect the host of the party. Yeah, look, this, look I, part of the reason I don't like getting bogged down into the, the practicalities of this is that I think all of these questions around like, you know, what's the right thing to do? Is this OK uh, or not? It all comes down to where you stand on the like individualism versus collectivism spectrum. You know, if you're like maximally individualist, uh, then you might think, you know, sc- screw like these other people feeling disrespected or whatever. You know, like yeah, I, I, I do what. Yeah, I, I do what I want. My kid can do what they want. If you're more collectivist, then you might think, okay, look, there are there are norms and stuff. There are expectations. You know, we're in this community. We have to play by the rules. That's kind of, you know, that's important. And so I, I think that the, the answer to all these practical questions is like, it depends on where you are on that spectrum. Uh, you know, I mean, the four of us are all sort of, uh, you know, Indian. Park. Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> we're not allowed to say that. <laughs> Considered offensive these days. I mean, it's not completely false, <laughs> but uh, look, no, the four, three of us. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, the four of us are all from you know Indian and Pakistani sort of backgrounds, which I think are you know those cultures are a bit more collectivist than uh, the sort of prevailing uh, Western norms nowadays, and so we might have like different views on that um, than sort of like a, a white person might do. Um, but yeah, I, I actually don't think the practical stuff is that useful to to get into. Um, but okay, yeah, it's, it's interesting to to get your thoughts, Shaz. Zara, like, tell us a bit more about, I mean, so you, were you taken seriously as a kid? Like, do, do you remember any incident? Did, are there any, like, strong memories you have of, like, being taken seriously or not being taken seriously when you were a kid? Um, I think I have most strong memories about not being taken seriously. Most of the time when I was really young and I wanted to wear something and my mom would just say, okay, I'm not taking you because you're not wearing what I asked you to. So I got left sometimes. <laughs> and you felt in those contexts you weren't taken seriously? Yeah. I wanted to wear like, I don't know, a random nice top or something. Or I had to wear like a wedding clothes. 
because we're going, going to, to a wedding. Yeah. Okay. But I wanted to just wear like casuals. And she said, no, you can't because that's a wedding and we don't wear that. So I think most of my childhood is just fighting with my mom to do one thing and she wanted the other thing. Okay. But it sounds like this is another example of Tame's thing of individual versus yeah. collectivism. I think so. I think it's hard to it's hard to disentangle that from... Because it seems like often if you ask kids, you know, were you taken seriously, kids will look at examples in their own lives where their own autonomy was infringed upon for the sake of what the parents were saying. And generally what the parents are saying would be more in line with the collectivist. You know, there are social norms, honey. You can't just turn turn up to this wedding wearing your dinosaur suit. Yeah. Um, which is actually a large chunk of memories that people have about their childhood. Yeah, I guess it's tricky because <clears throat> I think that the feeling of being taken seriously or not being taken seriously is probably more sort of more more down to like lots of small things and like little signals and stuff like that that won't be tangible enough for you to remember of like oh my mom said this to me but it's like subtle things of like you know you asking your parents something you asking an adult something and they just having like a dismissive tone or they just kind of you know really sort of subtle things that I think you do pick up on as a kid that won't be sort of salient enough for you to think oh yeah that time I wanted to do this thing. Uh, my parents just kind of ignored me or something, you know. So I, I, th I think it's tricky. I, I, I think it is tricky to recall these things. I think one of the issues as well with the phrase kind of being taken seriously is that for most people, when they run the search, uh, when they run the search function for, you know, times in which I was taken seriously, the only things that will really come to mind are I wanted to do something and I wasn't allowed to do the thing. Therefore, I wasn't taken seriously. Like for me, I don't remember specific moments where, I asked a question and it wasn't taken seriously. I remember once when I asked my mum, well, you know, our mum, <laughs> where, where babies come from. And she said kind of down below. And I kind of assumed she meant like the bum or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> because like what else is down below? <laughs> um, but it's, you know, <laughs> what would being taken seriously in that context kind of look like as well? So it's when you start getting into like asking uh, in, into specific examples Hmm. you then get kind of bogged down in the practicalities, as you say. Yeah. But I feel like you're trying to get people to arrive at some kind of conclusion, which you're peddling that, you know, damn man, the kids these days are not taken seriously enough. And the kids actually look at their memories and think, well, I don't know, really, I guess, you know, sometimes I wasn't allowed to do the you know, 100% what I wanted to do. And then you would say, well, actually, bro, you're being bogged down in practicalities right now. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it's true. Maybe that's a bad question. That's maybe, maybe that's a bad prompt. Um, but I think like, I don't know. I think even if... I'd probably have trouble recalling specific instances where I feel like I wasn't taken seriously. But I think I, I do have a general sense, an overwhelming general sense of not being taken seriously as a child. Like as, as, as defined by what? By wanting to do stuff that you were then not allowed to do? Or? No, just not, you know, not treated as a sort of... Uh, <laughs> I think the phrasing you used in the last um, episode was as a full human being. Right, yeah, yeah. Or a full person. Yeah, I, I, actually, I, yeah, I, I think the thing... The thing I said about like being treated as an object, I think like objectification uh, is is probably like um, you know how how I felt. Okay, and do and 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 in your sense, being treated like an object equals not being taken seriously. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I guess not being taken seriously kind of means not being treated as a human being, and that kind of means being treated as an object instead. In many ways. I mean, when you say that uh, treated as an object, one thing it reminds me of um, as a child when I was about three or four years old or so um a lot of family members like distant relatives or people like that um i think for children they feel as though they're completely entitled to just come up to you and like pick you up and start like throwing you around yeah, yeah. and grabbing your cheeks and doing whatever and <laughs> manhandling you basically yeah and um 
there's kind of I don't think much thought goes into does the child actually like the fact that I'm doing this? Do they, are they comfortable with me doing this? Yeah. I, don't, I don't think any thought goes into that at all. Yeah. Um, I think probably what they might think is that the child doesn't have a sense of being comfortable or not comfortable mm. with close contact w- with people who are often a stranger to them yeah um just the fact that you see a child and you think they're cute or whatever you can kind of do whatever you want to and it's <laughs> yeah. and it's all fine yeah um which for many children probably is um i just so happen to be one that kind of avoided physical contact with other people quite a lot and <laughs> right. probably still am to be honest and uh yeah you know you people who i barely know would not think of doing that now right but for a child of that age i think they're kind of the way they might take it isn't really taken into account at yeah all. yeah no I, I think that's that's a really good example of like the objectifying thing and yeah i think situations like that of like especially in like sort of semi-public or group situations where the child is almost like passed passed around <laughs> as an object in some way i think those are the most like really obvious cases where you're sort of being treated as as an object but i think yeah, the other stuff around the object thing is kind of uh, we, we mentioned this in the previous episode about how uh, there's this sense that uh, the child is some kind of product that the parent has to sort of craft and give the right sort of uh, you know mold into the right shape uh, until they're sort of like a successful product or whatever. Um, I think that, and there's a general sense of that. I think, but I think I think people might object to the uh, you know classification of being passed around <laughs> essentially <laughs> as as being a, sort of objectification obje- objectification here sort of with 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 negative con- connotations for example one of our friends has a one and a half month uh, one and a half year ish old child and for example on group holidays and stuff she brings a child along people want to play with the kid want to pass her around kind of be like smile at the kid the kid laughs the kid the kid is all happy you know 19 years from now that i i think it would be unfair for the kid to be like you know what mom <sighs> when you were hanging out with your medic friends when you were like you know 24 you know, I was tossed around a little bit. And um, I think that was very objectifying because, you know, although it helped develop my own social skills and helped me like learn, learn interaction with strangers, I just don't appreciate the fact you objectified me to that extent. I, okay, I, look, I think, I think I, that, that that would probably be a, be a little bit unfair. Yeah, look, I think th- there's definitely part of this kind of stuff, which is just sort of normal, healthy socialization of babies and children. But which in a way requires them to be treated as an object. Uh, sure. I think, I think, you know, to be crafted and molded as the parents see appropriate. I think it's, it's probably, I think it's more defensible for the, in this example of the one and a half year old kid. But I think, I mean, this happens, you know, for sure to kids, you know, more than even five years old, at which point the kid definitely has awareness of things. The kid can definitely communicate. The kid definitely has preferences, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and so I think your, your example is a bit extreme. I think, you know, your example seems fine to me. But I think people definitely take this much further than that. Um, and then even like, you know, go and give so-and-so a hug or a kiss or whatever. Anyway, let's let's not get too bogged down into these things. Um, <laughs> because uh, today, I uh, maybe last week, two weeks ago, I emailed the author of the essay that we were discussing um, to ask her for other interesting things to read. And she sent me <clears throat> a really good PDF entitled Epistemic Injustice and the Child. Uh, by Michael D. Burroughs and Deborah Tollefson. What does epistemic mean? I feel like I've heard it in many contexts, but I've never quite understood it. It kind of means just relating to sort of knowledge. Uh, I th- yeah, epistemology is like, I mean... Is that like where words come from? 
Uh, that's no, no, no. That's etymology. Yeah. Oh, damn. <laughs> uh, according to Wikipedia, epistemology is a branch of philosophy concerned with knowledge. It's it, anything about like knowledgey type stuff. Um, you just like chuck the epistemic sort of adjective in there to tell to say that we we're, we're talking about this kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> I, I feel like it's the kind of thing that you just need to hear in enough context to understand like what it's referring to. Um, anyway, papers entitled "Epistemic Epistemic Injustice and the Child." Um, let me tell you about it, uh, and I think it I think it does a, a reasonable job of actually uh, making this idea of what does it mean to take someone seriously uh, a lot more concrete than I have managed to so far in these discussions. Um, so. To start off, it introduces the idea of uh, epistemic credibility, which is basically like, you know, how much credibility you give someone uh, for being like a thinking human being kind of thing. And so uh, <clears throat> there's, lot, there's, you know, there's lots of uh, instances uh, increasingly nowadays where we're becoming more sort of, uh, it's becoming much more of a public thing where, for example, a woman is taken less seriously because, in a boardroom because she's a woman compared to the men, or a black person is taken less seriously in some context compared to a white person, this is like epistemic injustice. You're sort of, you know, tr treating someone's sort of knowledge or status as a person who has knowledge about things. You're sort of mm. treating that uh, in, a, in a biased or unfair way, okay? And uh, this thing about being taken seriously, you, you can kind of think of being taken seriously uh, as being part of this idea of uh, epistemic justice, you know, like giving someone the same like epistemic status as someone else if you're tra uh, tr treating them seriously. Whereas, for example, if you're biased against women, you wouldn't give a woman the same epistemic status as uh, a man, uh, all else remaining equal uh, in, say, a business context. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're now becoming much more aware of all the different ways uh, and different groups that are, uh, sort of targeted by epistemic injustice. And the paper basically uh, argues that children are a severe target group uh, of epistemic injustice and in that they're, they're really not taken seriously. Um, and so probably, yeah, probably like the main point of the paper is to try and say that uh, children receive less epistemic credibility than they deserve. Uh, and, you know, we have these stereotypes about kids as being like irrational and suggestible and unreliable and stuff like that, right? Right. But when you say they're, uh, they're not given as much epistemic credibility, does that mean that they're not taken seriously in terms of how much knowledge they have about a particular subject? Or is it more general than that? Um, so I think, I think like the credibility you give someone is very context dependent. For example, you should, you should give me no credibility when it comes to talking I'm, about parenting, for example. <laughs> uh, yeah. You, you should give me very little credibility when it comes to talking about parenting. So it, it is, it is all very like context dependent, but the point that the uh, authors are trying to make is that we consistently give children less credibility than they deserve within specific contexts. Um, and so for example, uh, so like the most, the most like concrete example that this paper sort of often talks about is the legal context, uh, partly because I, mean, I think basically because, uh, it's one of the few areas in which there's like actual data and records of things related to children. So a legal context would be, uh, you know, some kind of court case where a child is testifying against someone. Uh, and then, you know, lots of people have looked at, uh, you know, a bunch of court cases involving children and looked at, 
uh, how the children have given testimony and stuff like that. And so the paper talks a lot about this idea of testimony, uh, which is kind of like a technical term in philosophy or whatever, but you can really think of testimony as just like, you know, someone is making a claim, this child is saying something, and like, do I believe them? Do I think uh, I, I should take that seriously? Uh, and I think one of, one of the sort of, I think one of the main points of the art, actually, b- before I get into that stuff, I think the article has a really good story, uh, which I think will resonate. It certainly resonated with me a bit. Um, all right, so this, this is a little passage from uh, a book called A Circle of Quiet. That is the autobiography of someone called Madeleine Longle, <laughs> the Engel. Uh, and how do, how do you spell that? L apostrophe Engel. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, and so I'll, I'll read out the passage. Sorry, I was giving you very little epistemic credibility when it came to pronunciation of names. You were. <laughs> I do apologize. <laughs> Just give me a moment here. <coughs> All right. All right, so this is, this is the autobiography of this, um, of this uh, woman. Uh, she says, I was about eight, certainly old enough to have forgotten what it was like to wet one's pants. One day in French class, I asked to be excused. The French teacher must have been having problems with children wanting to leave the room for other reasons and using the bathroom as an excuse uh, because she forbade me to go. I asked her three times and three times I was told no. When the bell for the end of the class rang, I bolted from my desk and ran, but I couldn't quite make it and spent the rest of the afternoon sodden and ashamed. When my mother heard what happened, she demanded to see the principal. I remember with awful clarity the scene in the principal's office after the French teacher had been summoned. She said, she, the French teacher said, but Madeline never asked to go to the bathroom. If she had only raised her hand, of course I would have excused her. Uh, and the French teacher was believed. Uh, I was reprimanded gently, told to ask ne- next time and not to lie about it afterwards. To have an adult lie and to have another adult not know that it was a lie. To tell the truth myself and not be believed. The earth shook on its foundations. So this is a you know, story about how this kid, she was eight, uh, the teacher basically lied and said, no, kid didn't do that. And all the other <clears throat> adults basically believed the teacher because she was an adult and the kid was a kid. Um, and so I think like, this is a, obviously like an extreme account where something very clear cut has happened. Uh, but I think it's the, the sort of sentiment is representative of like the widespread experience of, I think, children in relation to adults. And certainly it feels like that would be the general attitude um, that I would have sort of faced as a, as a kid kind of thing. I think what particularly strikes me from that story is um, something more basic, which is if you're in school, why is having to ask permission to go to the toilet even a thing and the possibility of being denied that? Yeah. Um, I mean, if I'm going to work now, I never have to feel like I have to ask anybody or, you know, it would be absurd, but I don't really understand why that should ever be considered okay for a child for them to have to ask permission to have the possibility of them being refused, especially given the fact that it's something they have less control over than an adult. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's bizarre. I think it's like, uh, yeah, symptomatic of the general, like children are sort of objects to be controlled by adults kind of vibe um but yeah look i think that's a pretty harrowing harrowing tale so i, I think that's a good anecdote story just to put the rest of this stuff into uh into context uh now all right look let me try and make sure i make these points in a structured way oh 
I remember I had a situation similar to this. Oh. It wasn't quite. It wasn't quite identical. Um, I was. I was also a lot older. I think I was seventeen. <laughs> this was in maths class with Miss Marsh. <laughs> oh, I remember Miss Marsh. Um, and I was absolutely desperate for a poo. <laughs> and um, what was it? I think. I think I put my hand up and. I was like, I was being systematically ignored because I'd, I feel like I put my hand up for a few other things in that lesson and uh, Miss Marsh felt that I was... <laughs> taking the piss. I was taking, yeah, I was taking the piss. <laughs> really, you were taking the... Yeah. <laughs> really, I needed to take a... <laughs> yeah. Um, and so at one point it got unbearable and so I was like, I'm so sorry, I have to go to the toilet and I bolted. <laughs> and I tried to do a speed poo uh, and I came back to the classroom as the bell was going. And Miss Marsh said that I was going to come back um, at break time for like 10 minutes or something um, to make up for lost time. So I was like, cool, that's fine. Then Miss Marsh phoned Mimi at work being like, I'm really, I'm really concerned about Ali. Um, he just ran away from the classroom. And also his general attitude has been a bit problematic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think mainly this was because this was, oh, you know, I, th I think it was in the upper sixth where C3 was like surprisingly hard. Mm. Like I kind of breezed through C1 and C2 without doing any, any work. And like actively taking the piss in, in class and just hanging out with, with the boys. Legend. Exactly. And, th and then in C3, I, was, I, I got like, I don't know, 63 out of 75 in like the, the end of year test. <laughs> and apparently this was a big deal for Miss Marshall. <laughs> so she rang me at work. But I felt like this was a real injustice because I couldn't control my bowels. And I felt like I hadn't been taken seriously. It's, it's, it's probably not quite as harrowing a story as uh, Miss Longle, but <laughs> I just thought I'd share that. This doesn't seem, I mean... It seems like you were taking the piss and <laughs> generally and being sort of a, a disrespectful twat in class. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I don't think she was complaining that Ali went to the toilet. <laughs> that obviously wasn't the complaint. <laughs> yeah, fine. I just wanted to share that. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing <laughs> in the circle of trust. <laughs> All right. On the topic, I actually wet myself when I was like, um, this was a year nine. Was that like 14? <laughs> we were on a school trip. Uh, we were on a school trip to uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, the birthplace of Shakespeare, if he existed. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and I think, uh, basically, I think the teachers had already... Like, we stopped off at some service station or something, and the teachers had fairly recently said like all right if anyone needs to go to the bathroom do it now and i didn't go at that point <laughs> but then after that point i needed to go to the bathroom and we were like queuing up outside the um i don't know hostel or where, wherever we were staying and i was really desperate and i didn't want to like be a pain and like say oh can i go to the bathroom now even though you just like asked everyone to go to the bathroom 15 minutes ago and i didn't go <laughs> so i tried to hold it in and then uh, I, I couldn't <laughs> and then i i wet my pants <laughs> Yep. And do you feel like this was symptomatic of you not being taken seriously or were you just sharing a pant-wetting story? <laughs> I was just sharing a, a pant-wetting story while we were all doing that. Fair enough. Charles and Zara? <laughs> um, I don't know. I can't think of any uh, particular occasion. I, I'm, glad I'm, I'm glad that probably happened earlier than I can... Oh, no, actually. Um, this is not something I remember, but it's something that my mum tells me. Um is that I, as a child, I learned to talk very early. Okay. Um, and uh, so uh, I used to be able to speak, and that was assumed to be a sign of intelligence. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I'd still be completely, you know, wetting myself like a normal <laughs> child does. And 
And, and uh, what, what my mum tells me is that, you know, I'd be having full on conversations with people saying, yes, I'm, I, I did this today and I, I want to have that for dinner. And uh, by the way, I just went to the, went to the toilet while we were speaking. That's amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'd get told off like, why didn't you say so from beforehand? And, um, and uh, looking back on it, I think, you know, maybe, maybe the ability to speak does not uh, represent intelligence as, as you might want to think. That, that's such a power move, though. <laughs> what are we talking? I just wet myself. <laughs> right, Zara? I didn't think I have any pet wedding stories. Charles, do you, is she telling the truth? Um, uh, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that I, one. I think I have a really good bladder control. I'm very proud of that. Damn. <laughs> I was getting excited for a moment because I thought you were going to say, I ha- I've got a really good bladder control story. <laughs> yeah. Generally. Generally. Yeah. Strong pelvic floor. Very. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good stuff. I'm glad we went on that tangent about wetting, <laughs> wetting one's pants. Have I told you by the time I pooed my pants at age 17? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> Oh, okay, all right. Uh, I guess the listeners don't know this, but like Tame just had to go to the bathroom before starting on this podcast. And I think Zara asked something like, are we not allowed to go in the middle or, or something like that? But, uh, no, thankfully, we are allowed to. So, All right, let's get back. Uh, moving swiftly on. Moving swiftly on. Let's get back on track. Okay. That was a harrowing, harrowing experience though when I was 17. <laughs> Oh, just tell the story. <laughs> no, nah, nah, I can't. I can't do it. It's 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 too much. I'll do it. I'll do it when we're off the record. <sighs> All right. Um, by the way, if you're listening and you have any stories about yourself, <laughs> uh, wedding or putting your pants, just do send them in. We'll... Yeah, please send us a, a voice note, and then we can potentially have a bonus episode that we compile all of the uh, pant and uh, boxer wedding stories. To be honest, I don't think I don't think it's actually like a, a trivial thing. I think like it takes real vulnerability and like authenticity to share that kind of thing with other people and i think hearing hearing people tell these stories that have like emotional significance to them it's actually quite like an interesting thing i agree so if you'd like to be even more courageous and leave your name and uh you know where you're from and all that then we can identify you when you're telling the story that would be even better all right good stuff right okay so just give me a moment here skillshare.com slash not overthinking just as a quick reminder all right Right. Okay. I think there's a. All right. So we've. I basically said, look, the point of this paper is to try and suggest that uh, we have prejudices against children as being irrational and suggestible and unreliable, and as a result, uh, children as a class are subject to a lot of epistemic injustice where they're not taken seriously enough. Uh, and they're not taking it as seriously as they should be within given contexts. I, I had a very specific example of this very thing. Oh, yeah. Um, this was in year two when we were in school in Lesotho, uh, a country in southern Africa. And I remember me and some of the boys, or rather, uh, I, was, I was hanging out with some of the boys. And they discovered, you know, there was a tree growing in, in the schoolyard. And they picked some fruit off that tree and ate, and ate the fruit. And I was a bit like, oh, that's a bit disgusting because you haven't washed it, mate. <laughs> because I was, I was that kind of guy. And then we all got hauled up to the principal's office and the principal accused all of us of uh, eating the fruit from the tree. Uh, apparently this was forbidden fruit and so we, were, we were not allowed to eat the fruit. And I maintained that I didn't eat the fruit. And the principal said, no, I saw you. I saw you definitely ate the, fr- ate the fruit. And I remember thinking, 
why the hell would I eat the fruit? It's like clearly disgusting and not washed. And why on earth would I eat fruit from the thing? Like it just, it's completely <laughs> unfeasible for me to eat that fruit. And yet you're saying I ate it. And I, I remember just kind of getting a bit kind of stuck because mm. I didn't quite have the uh, language capabilities to argue my case. Right. Plus this was also the principal and Nani, our grandmother also worked at that school. So Nani, so the principal was telling Nani that Ali ate this fruit from the tree and then he was lying about it. And I was like, no, yeah. <laughs> like it, it, there is no world in which I would eat the fruit from the bloody tree. But <laughs> yeah. I feel like I couldn't say it. So that I feel this was a, an example of epistemic injustice. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. Classic, classic tale of adult versus child. Um, and yeah, look, the reason this, the reason this is so bad is that I mean, there's a, there's a practical thing of, like, it's bad if in society, like, people have useful information that isn't, like, being made use of. You know, if, if a child has some useful information that's not sort of taken seriously, it's, it's bad, you know. Useful stuff might come out of that. But probably more than that, I think there's a real, like, cost to this. You know, you're sort of treating someone as subhuman. You're sort of made to feel less human. Uh, the... The paper quotes another paper <laughs> saying the capacity to the capacity to give knowledge to others is one side of the many sided capacity so significant in human beings, namely the capacity for reason. When someone suffers a uh, testimonial injustice, they're calling it in this other paper, they are degraded. They're degraded qua knower. <laughs> I think qua means like as a knower. You know, they're de- degraded as a knower. As someone, a, what? a knower, someone who knows things. <laughs> oh, okay. I uh, talking about the guy with oh no <laughs> i'm sure he had his own set of problems <laughs> and they're symbolically derated as humans so look this is like a really this is a really bad thing we should we should be worried about this basically this reminds me um there is a game called avalon which is a board game that is very similar to mafia or werewolf if you're if you're familiar with that um the main premise of this is that there are some people in the group who are bad guys who know who know who each other are so they have knowledge of who the bad guys are and everyone else is a good guy and, and doesn't know the identity of other people. And so as a bad guy, you have to kind of make your case that you are, in fact, a good guy and to try and kind of hoodwink the rest of the group. And there is a very clear example of injustice that happens. In order for the bad guys to win, they often have to point to one of the good guys who's actually good in the group and knows they're good as being bad. And they have to sell to the rest of the group that that person is, in fact, a bad guy. Now, this is an extremely harrowing experience for the person in that in that position. <laughs> And I remember the first time we played this game, we had some newcomers. This was in Bali after like a medical conference in Singapore that me and some friends went to. And the two bad guys were me and, our, and my friend Paul, who was also very experienced at playing the game. And the, the, the mock, <laughs> you know, the, the target of our con. The Patsy. The, the Patsy was one of the people in the group um, who was a first timer in playing the game. And we really, you know, in order to win the game, we really had to kind of degrade her Kwan Noah. <laughs> yeah. She knew she was a good guy. Yeah. And by the end of it, you know, everyone was convinced that she was bad and she just had no idea how to deal with that. She yeah. was just fully, completely, yeah, yeah, completely wrecked. And she was like really, really shaken up after this, like like visibly so and didn't want to play the game. And then 20 minutes later, she, she came back from bed and she was like, right guys, round two, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. There, there's really nothing, you know, few things as frustrating as, yeah, not being taken seriously as, as someone who knows things. I think with children as well, um, a big problem that a child has is the lack of capacity to communicate what they're thinking as well as an adult can. So um, just based on that, because they can't get their message across, but it's still all there in their minds, um, that can be a really frustrating experience. And um, I think I used to find this sometimes when I was a child as well, when I'd be annoyed about something i don't know 
anything stupid like my toy broke or uh, I don't know, I wasn't allowed to watch TV or something. But the fact that I was in a bad mood would often be put down to the fact that he hasn't slept yet or he hasn't eaten yet or uh, he's just uh, feeling too hot or cold. Or it would be completely um, put down to something unrelated. And in my mind, I would have an actual thing that no this is the specific thing i'm annoyed about i want something to be done about this yeah (laughs) Uh, whether something is done about it or not the fact that you can't communicate is a particularly frustrating experience now obviously there could be a possibility that children misattribute their mood to something other than what it really is you know yeah there is every possibility that I really was sleepy and that's why I was more upset about something than I would have otherwise been. Right, yeah. But the fact remained that I still had a thing on my mind that I'm upset about this particular thing. Yeah. And either I'm lacking in the ability to communicate it yeah. or just lacking in the ability to um, get people to focus on that as opposed to side issues like how much I ate or how much yeah. I slept slept yeah for sure or or something like that so um and i think there's not really that much that can be done about it because children it's a matter of fact they lack that capacity for communication so um so there's there's not really much you can do i think um parents and guardians and caregivers are in the sort of unenviable position of having to try and guess what their child is trying to say uh, and um you know obviously it's not an easy thing to do so i'd like to push push back against that a little bit uh, the, the specifically the thing you said about like it's just a fact that children are like bad at communicating with i think ch- children are definitely not as good as you know when you're very young you're not as good as someone who or older at specifically stringing together words to describe uh, how you're feeling uh, but one of the big things that this paper argues is that uh, it is on the adults in all these situations to be active listeners and responsible hearers and to sort of, you know, there, there are good and bad ways to try and communicate with a child. Um, and oftentimes, I mean, once again, <clears throat> the only context in which there's specific data and actual records for things is court cases. And uh, I think a bunch of people looked at a bunch of high profile court cases. I think there was like a bunch of like child abuse cases uh, in like the 70s or something. Uh, and so there were a bunch of kids who had to give testimony as part of this. And uh, I think, yeah, someone, a bunch of people looked into, you know, all of these cases and how the testimony went and stuff like that. And it was kind of found that, uh, you know, you might, for example, you might say, no, kids are just like inaccurate when they recall things. They can't recall things accurately like adults. You know, they're really suggesting you might say stuff like that. Uh, but the people who looked into this stuff found that, the inaccuracies in the kids' testimonies mostly arose because of uh, sort of the wrong techniques being used by the adults who were sort of asking them questions. And so there's like a general assumption in the legal literature that basically kids are stupid. Uh, there's, just, there's like this uh, general assumption. And so when, when kids were being asked questions, the questions would often be like leading, they'd often sort of use incriminating language to try and incriminate the person who was being accused of the child abuse or whatever. Um, and that would that that would be the thing that would lead to inaccuracies. Uh, whereas if you sort of use the right sort of communication style when talking to kids, they are 
you know, look, I don't really care for studies in general. Uh, I, I buy most of what this paper is saying based on my own sort of like experience and uh, sort of, yeah, basically based on my own experience. Uh, I, I see the studies as like, okay, yeah, you know, some supporting evidence for that. Uh, but there are studies that <clears throat> strongly suggest that from like the age of two, kids can actually recall stuff as accurately uh, as adults. Um, and as, certainly by the age of six, kids are like hands down as accurate as adults uh, when recording things. Uh, and when you ask them questions in an appropriate way, they're not necessarily more suggestible than adults. Um, the thing that gives people the perception that you can't trust a kid giving testimony in a court is that the courtroom environment is just a really stressful place for anyone, but especially kids. And so the kids might be like fidgeting. They might be like looking around. Their posture might be weird. And this is all like body language that we generally take to mean that someone is lying about something. But like if you put a kid on the stand and you're like grilling them in a courtroom, they're going to be nervous and uncomfortable. And just because they look nervous and uncomfortable doesn't mean they're actually uh, sort of lying to you. And so, uh, Ali, do you want to say something? Oh, yeah, a couple, a couple of points on this. Um, when, so, Charles, when you were describing this uh, feeling of being frustrated that your testimony was not being given um, the appropriate uh, seriousness that it deserved based on other mitigating factors, like the fact you might be tired or hungry or sleepy or whatever, um, that reminds me a lot of what a lot of my female friends have said about how they get annoyed that they're not taken seriously based on external factors. And I'm curious, Zara, if you've had an experience of this, because stuff that I've heard is, for example, um, like a female friend would be saying that it's it's really frustrating arguing with uh, men about topics like sexism or like racism, because, you know, I, essentially, I can't help that it makes me feel angry and frustrated because I've had these experiences happen to me. And then and 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 I can't really help the fact that I, I I kind of tear up a bit when this happens, and so and and as soon as that happens, my my point is completely discounted, and it's the fact that I've teared up or I'm getting angry that is the sole sole focus of the thing. Is oh you know, you know oh here here she goes again, she's crying now. We we we, we can no longer take her seriously, and I imagine that must be incredibly frustrating as <laughs> as as a woman in that position. Zara, have you have you got any experience of this? <laughs> I think I have. Would you like to elaborate or <laughs> happy happy to just. Uh, uh, rest, rest the case there. <laughs> I don't remember, but it often happens that if you're trying to talk, or if you're trying to say something, and then after a very long conversation, if somebody's not listening, I just start crying because, you know, oh my God, please listen. Please listen to what I'm saying. But they think, oh, are you angry because of something else? Is it because of this reason? But it's not. It's just because you're not listening. <laughs> that must be pretty harrowing for you in that position. I suppose. Hmm. So that was point number one. Okay. Um, point number two is uh, this is uh, a book a book that I listened to recently uh, called uh, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, uh, and he makes this exact point about um, well in a in a related case he told he he, he tells the story of a court case where a um, some college girl got murdered and the roommate uh, was uh, falsely accused and convicted of committing this murder and the thing that made everyone believe that she was actually was was the murderer is the fact that she behaved in a sort of shifty fashion based on body language and all that kind of stuff and for example she did not seem to be showing the appropriate levels of grief as one would when you know a close friend has died and for example she would like nervously laugh or kind of would fidget and, and things like that and the and the the point that gladwell makes 
throughout throughout the whole book really is that we are absolutely terrible at reading the body language of others even though for some reason we we have this view that oh yeah obviously you know if someone's fidgeting it means that they're lying this is something that mimi does a lot as well she says that you know why are you looking so down or you know what you know you're moving your hands right now you must be anxious and then my leg is shaking right now it's been shaking for the whole thing yeah i mean it's probably not the case that you're anxious talking about the kids it's just kind of the way that you behave Exactly. And, and, and he argues that in about 50% of cases, again, looking at, at the studies, which you have said that you don't really care for, but in about 50% of the cases, people's body language is kind of unmatched to what they're actually feeling internally. And yet we systematically think we can actually read more into their body language. And so yeah. that's a yeah side point about the thing about kids, the, the kind of this, this happening also to non-kids. But I can see how in a court, in a court situation, kids would very much fall under this bracket of everyone thinks they can actually tell a lot more about the kid purely by the fact that the kid is fidgeting and looking around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so look, just to round off this point about like the courtroom context, which I think extends outside the courtroom as well. Uh, the paper says that, you know, if you're thinking about like, are we, get, you know, are we in danger of giving children too much credit or like take them too seriously, right? There's like two components of this. There's like competence of like, can this person actually give testimony? And then there's like sincerity of like, you know, is this person sort of, trying to lie to me basically uh and the paper basically says that the sincerity thing is you know it's a complicated thing it's not very well defined are adults sincere almost certainly not like don't worry about that if you look at the competence thing uh it look it's very like domain specific i think one mistake that people make is like basically that you know i wouldn't trust i wouldn't trust a kid to like give me financial advice therefore kids are stupid uh, overall Whereas it's really like you know, context specific. Uh, and yes, kids might be worse at giving financial advice, but there are plenty of domains in which they can very reliably tell you things that are useful and meaningful, particularly when it comes to their own experiences about things. Yeah, th- uh, this is something uh, the psychiatrist that I, I used to work for um, this time last year used to say a lot. Um, we were in an old age psychiatry placement where a lot of the patients had dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, stuff like that. Uh, so a lot of the patients didn't have capacity to make make certain decisions. And this consultant was always annoyed by how people wouldn't take them seriously enough um, by saying, oh, you know, uh, th- this patient doesn't have capacity. And he would always be like, no, capacity, capacity is decision specific. She might not have capacity to decide on, you know, to manage her finances, but she certainly does have capacity to accept or reject a cup of tea. Yeah. And that was his like point basically every single day. Yeah. Everyone, someone would badge, oh, you know, that, that patient doesn't have capacity. It's like, no. Uh, and I think this definitely applies to the kids as well yeah 100 percent, mate once i'm done with the kids old people are next old people are not taken seriously systematically inside we'll get to that in a few episodes time anyway right basically <clears throat> whether you should take the kids seriously about what they're saying i mean you should always take them seriously but like whether you should uh give credence to whatever the kid is saying depends on the context there are plenty of contexts in which kids are very well qualified to talk about something and you know if you look at studies and things uh basically you need the right communication style in order to successfully communicate with uh, a young kid and there's actually a really great anecdote which was really eye-opening for me um yeah this is from like another uh book or study or something it's it's, it's quoted in the paper uh the quote is young children are often uninterested in conversation they want to be on the move and they are often bored at the prospect of hearing words and being expected to use them (laughs) It is not that they don't have ideas and feelings or a need to express them to others. Indeed, their games and play, their drawings and finger paintings are full of energetic symbolization and communication. It's simply that, as one eight-year-old once told me, 
talking is okay, but I don't like to do it all the time the way grown-ups do. So like kids basically need a different approach and communication style. It requires active listening and responsible hearing from the adult involved. Um, but you know, kids are very competent at giving testimony, i.e. at saying things uh, that you might want to believe. All right, so that's point number one, right? Uh, so that's one thing. Now, I think the thing that makes this so tricky, how are we doing for time? 58 minutes. Damn, okay. Um, look, the thing that makes all, all this so tricky is that I think this is really like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, if, he, if a kid grows up in an environment in which every message they get from an adult is you're a kid, you're deficient and stupid, and you're not worthy to be taken seriously, it's going to affect, like, how the kid performs, for example, you know, when when giving testimony and things like that. It's, yeah, I don't know if the mic picked that up. Bazaar just said that the, the, the kid doesn't take themselves seriously. And yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, I think, like, when we think about childhood, the literature seems to call this the deficit model of childhood, where, like, the, mo- the primary characteristic of being a child uh, or of childhood is that you are d- a deficient human being compared to an adult. If you think about childhood, most of our ideas around what it means is that like, ah, it's the period in which you are a deficient human being until you become an adult and then you are you know, not deficient anymore. And all the narratives and all the messages that we give kids are that you are de- deficient, basically. And yeah, it's, it's like a very self-fulfilling thing you know once again if you care about studies you know they show that children children's views of their own competence are highly dependent on the appraisals of that other people give them like if you tell a child that they're stupid they will think they're stupid if you tell them that they're not trustworthy they will think they're not trustworthy all of this kind of stuff and so it's like really cyclical whenever you have uh i feel like a lot of a lot of the issues around taking kids seriously are very cyclical when we were talking about some friends, I think a week ago, uh, I visited Cambridge with, with some friends and we were talking about this topic. And one of them was saying something like, man, have you spoken to a four-year-old? You know, they're so stupid. Why, why, why should I take a four-year-old seriously? I wasn't taken seriously as a four-year-old and it was the right thing to do, th- this kind of stuff. And again, it's like cyclical. If you're, and actually anecdotally, the people I know, like through like family and friends and stuff, the situations in which the kids have obviously been like babied for far too long, it really seems like the the kids' development is hindered. You know, um, yeah, I've definitely known like eight year olds uh, who've kind of been excessively babied by their parents, and they behave in a way that many other eight year olds wouldn't. So I think like whatever messages you're giving the kid, the kid is going to kind of internalize that. And if you take them seriously from a young age, you know they're going to take themselves seriously uh, rather than kind of seeing themselves as an incompetent baby kind of thing. Yeah, just a side point. Um, we're s- somewhat related. This also applies a lot to adults. Um, the The context in which I've seen it, seen it most often is in the studies around uh, intelligence and kind of comparing the intelligence of, gr- of different groups, like, for example, women and, for example, black people. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the studies show this idea of stereotype threat, that if you give men and women like a maths test, for example... Uh, and you split the group, groups up into two and you prime one group to think that women are bad at maths uh, and you don't do that thing to the other group, the primed group will perform worse. Equally, if you, for, for, for example, if you have a group of students of different races and you say that, you know, this test will uh, tell us something about, you know, how your type of people perform, you know, that, that sort of stuff. 
the uh, ethnic minorities in that group will perform systematically worse than the white people in the group. Uh, the theory being this is down to stereotype threat, like, you know, the the fact that they are concerned about the stereotype makes them, in a way, play into the stereotype and, and perform worse. I would have guessed it's also to do with um, perhaps, in a way, you're being given permission to perform badly on the test as well. If you're told that people of your type generally don't perform well on this test, then you might feel as though, well, I don't really need to try so hard then because, you know, maybe it's an unconscious thought, but you might think that... Um, if it's not expected of me to perform very well, then I don't particularly need to. Yeah, I, I hate to be a party pooper, but I think the stereotype threat study was actually re- recently debunked. I don't think it's legit anymore. Um, I'll have, we can look into that if you're interested, but I don't think it's legit. Uh, yeah, whatever. We, we can look into it. I, I do seem to remember seeing a sort of debunking of this that actually doesn't really replicate and the study was kind of dodgy or whatever um uh, which is true of most studies in psychology yeah sociology. exactly once again yeah. i don't really care for the study in this case uh i just you know i, I think it's true i think it's convincing um so yeah i think it, look, this deficit model of childhood where we see childhood as like primarily a thing of uh you know a time during which you're deficient uh i think this is really bad and kids internalize this and it has an effect on how they perform uh, you know, when it comes to giving testimony, when it comes to saying things and thinking about things and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and now, like, yeah, I think the, the other thing about this testimony stuff is that we often, you know, when you think about it, you, you almost see it as like uh, an, a sort of isolated property of the child. Like, can this child, you know, can this child give testimony about this thing? You, you, it sounds like it's a property of the child, whereas it's really a property of the child and their environment. And specifically, it, it's a property of the child and the adult who's trying to take testimony from them. Uh, you can, you know, if the child and the adult, you know, have, you know, a, a sort of good relationship where they can communicate well in the right style uh, that appeals to the child, the child can probably give very good testimony. If, like, you know, if the child has been raised in an environment where uh, they develop an identity as being a reliable testifier, or an environment where they're heard and listened to and taken seriously, uh, by sort of responsible and actively listening adults, the child will be better at giving testimony. Uh, whereas if they're being grilled in a courtroom by someone asking leading questions, they're probably not as good. And so we shouldn't really think of sort of, you know, can we take the kid seriously? Should we take this kid seriously? We should think of like, you know, what what is our role in this two-way interaction? And how can we foster an environment in which we, we in which we can actually take this child seriously? So I think it's very much like a two-way street. And I think, yeah, it's it's just so tricky because by default, I think we, we just like hammer this idea into kids of like, you're stupid, basically. And, you know, you're sort of starting from a very weak position at that point. Uh, and there's a lot for the kid to, to sort of overcome. Uh, there's another couple of good stories uh, around not be, uh, taking kids seriously. Uh, that basically suggests that kids are a lot more receptive and a lot smarter than we give them credit for. So uh, in the context of in the context of sort of dying children in sort of hospices or hospitals, uh, apparently, I, I, I don't know if this is still true in, in the majority of these hospitals today. There's a there's a book uh, from 1978 called In the Private Worlds of Dying Children, uh, where the author tries to like, yeah, I, th- I think they visit like a, a leukemia children hosp- children's hospital uh, just to kind of see see what's up basically and the author notes that 
I quote, she was repeatedly struck by the failure of adults to recognize children as knowers, knowers as in not Noah's Ark, but knowers as in people who know things, uh, and to recognize children as people who already know a great deal about their condition. Um, and the author says, I was struck by how totally unaware or in what or in what a state of denial the staff was about the extent of these children's knowledge. The most striking example was in the oncology clinic. There, in front of the children, some doctors and parents would exchange information about cancer cures, blood tests, deaths of other children. Then they would deny that the children knew anything about what was happening. Many adults stated that there was no way for the children to know anything about their diagnosis because they had not been told anything, like, explicitly. Um, but, yeah, basically the adults were sort of assuming that because we didn't explicitly say to the kid, Hey man, you've got a week left to live. The kid is like completely oblivious. They think they're chilling in a bed, you know, watching TV. There's a few other kids floating around. Um, and it, it sort of supports the conception of children as like passive and unknowing and lacking the capacity for understanding themselves. Um, and, uh, the, the author says, since the children did not ask the adults about their conditions, Researchers assumed that the children either did not know or were not interested in finding out about their condition. Um, children would indicate their awareness, felt by the, research, felt the researchers, by discussing it with adults, as many older children did. Uh, but the investigators didn't entertain the possibility that perhaps the children in, obtained information from other, other sources or that they were in fact ex expressing awareness but in a symbolic way that the adults did not understand or that by not talking about their condition, the kids were observing social taboos and attempting to save others' face, i.e. like the kids are picking up on the fact that like, oh, adult is not telling me about this thing and not explicitly talking to me about this. Yeah, this is something we, we shouldn't talk about. Um, and the author says, these alternatives do not occur to one who fails to see children as willful, purposeful individuals capable of creating their own world as well as acting in the world others create for them. So basically like, I don't know how much this still happens. Like, do you, Ali, in medicine have much experience of how people behave around kids? No? Okay. Yeah, but, I mean, certainly in this one hospital in which this, this author visited in the 70s or whatever, like, people were treating kids as complete idiots, basically, even though the kids were well aware of, um, of what was going on. I think that sort of reminds me of something that um, happens a lot with, um, say, the fact that in society we often try to hide from kids the fact that, uh, well, we try not to tell them where kids come from. Mm. And it's a question they often ask a lot about. Um, how are babies made? Where do they come from? And I feel like a lot of people give them an answer, which is either a blatant lie or a um, sort of glossing over the facts, which m may be a reasonable thing to do. But I think kids often don't get enough credit for the fact that they probably realize exactly what's going on that yeah. you know something is being kept from something them and put, yeah. and something is supposed to not be spoken about so they actively make that choice that i'm not going to speak about this thing because yeah. clearly nobody wants to yeah whereas i think a lot of people just assume that this kid is stupid mm. i've completely gone yeah. away with it <laughs> yeah uh, which is not always the case yeah for sure i remember in like year three <clears throat> My friends and I were like, you know, I don't know, reading about like sex. I, I can't remember how this came up. But I think we were curious about like sex and stuff. We must have been like seven years old at this point. Uh, and, we, you know, we just kind of did our own research on the topic um, that, you know, wasn't told to us by a responsible adult. <laughs> 
I think one thing we haven't talked a lot about, though, is perhaps the other side of the coin in which um, you spoke about the fact that we consider kids to be deficient in some way. And uh, there are many ways in which that's probably a false stereotype and in which they aren't. But there is also the fact of the matter that all kids are lacking in experience of the world compared to an adult. And I think one thing that I didn't realize as a kid was how much experience of the world matters to when you make decisions later on. And I think we've all had this experience where we think back to something that we did a long time ago, maybe in our teenage years or maybe before that. uh, And we think, oh my God, I was so stupid back then. If I had known this, that or the other, I would never have behaved in that way or I would have never made such a big deal out of this Mm. thing. You know, uh, maybe this five-year-old boy didn't invite me to his birthday party and I got really upset by that. (laughs) And, And to just look back on it with a lens of experience and think that if I knew what I know now, Mm. my response to that would be completely different. And I had this conversation with my mum when I was really young. Um, I said, um, I actually asked her that, why are kids not taken seriously in so many respects? Um, The context was I'd seen... uh, I'd seen Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on TV, and I and I saw that you have to be a minimum age of eighteen to apply to be on it. Ah. And I asked her, "Why is that the case? Why, why can I not apply to this before I'm age eighteen? And more generally, yeah. why are people not treated as um, legitimate people as mm. adults are?" And she said, "It's because kids are really lacking in experience." and um, don't necessarily make good decisions. You know, if if I give a million pounds to a kid, who knows what he's going to do with it? He might do something good with it, might do something bad with it, might yeah, yeah, yeah. might waste it, might throw it away. Um, children what don't... What, what if a parent thinks that my child is really intelligent, could go and, you know, how to be a millionaire, win money, and then I can use it? So kids don't know. Kids would trust you with anything. Yeah, so, um, so the, the conversation that we had was... You know, I was told about how kids lack experience. And then I said, yes, but kids don't necessarily lack intelligence. Um, They might be the smartest kid in the world. Mm. Um, Why would you not trust that kid to be able to make a good decision? Yeah. And then I was told experience is more important than intelligence. Right. And obviously, as someone very inexperienced, I didn't understand (laughs) why that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't remember getting an answer that was satisfactory to me at the time right but i think now if a kid asked me that i'd try and come up with a concrete example to demonstrate yeah, that that's yeah, the yeah. case you know i'd say something like okay maybe you're really intelligent uh do this hard maths problem for me i don't know 26 times 58 what what's that and it'll yeah. take them like five minutes to work it out and they'll tell me the answer but then i'll say okay but this whole time you've been speaking English to me. You've been doing a much more difficult task of recalling thousands of words, mm. what they all mean, how they fit together, grammatical rules. You've been doing this much more complicated thing than a simple maths question. But you find this so much easier than that. Why is that the case? Uh, okay. And it's purely because of experience, right. because you've done this so much more yeah. that it you don't even need to think about it 
Yeah. It comes naturally. And I think that applies in real life as well, that um, a lot of the time a kid does not have the experience to make a decision, but doesn't know that they're lacking in experience because they're lacking yeah, the experience yeah, yeah. of having experience. Yeah. Um, which I think was, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to think about it that way many years on from that conversation I had. Yeah. Yeah. I think the experience thing is a tough problem to solve. Uh, I think the problem being like, how do you convince someone that they're inexperienced and that they should uh, sort of listen to your experience or whatever? And I think like, yeah, I think this is like a perennial problem. Like every kid disobeys their parents until they like learn the lesson themselves kind of thing. Because you're not just going to trust when someone says that. In my experience, I think the whole experience thing, certainly with the adults around me, has kind of been weaponized uh, to be more far reaching than it should be. For example, uh, I've had various adults claiming that I think particularly in in a, a, a lot of like a lot of fields are very like domain specific. They're very, you know, they change quite a lot. I think careers is one of them. And I think in, in previous episodes, I've advocated for not taking old people's advice on careers very seriously, um, unless they have like very specific domain knowledge that you're trying to get. Uh, and I've, I've certainly, you know, seen it many times where an adult would claim like, oh, you know, you haven't seen the world. I'm, the, I'm, I'm this, I'm like 50 years old. I have seen the world. I have experience. And that's why I know that this, this thing is like good or bad or whatever. I, I've seen that kind of weaponized in context where it's actually not relevant. For example, like career advice, the older you are, probably the worse your career advice is because you don't really know how the world operates today, stuff like that. And so I'm generally skeptical of that. Uh, but yeah, I don't feel like I've ever had that communicated. Well, well when I was younger, I don't feel like I ever had the whole look, trust me because of my experience thing communicated in a way that actually like appealed and resonated with me that I'd actually listen to it. Uh, I think it's, it's tricky. Yeah. I think with the experience thing from a point, from the point of view of the, uh, quote, less experienced person who's being told, I have so much experience, listen to me. Mm. I think we should be able to develop a filter for that to be able to see what exactly is it that the person has experience of? Because there are certain things that change and certain things that don't. So mm. um, the way the economy works or, or the way the careers market works has changed quite a lot over the past few decades. So maybe an older person's experience might not be as relevant. But certain things have not changed that much. Probably human nature hasn't yeah, changed yeah. that much. So um, if you're kind of... If you're kind of teaching your, I don't know, 12 year old child, you know, don't get distracted at work, uh, uh, don't get distracted at school by, uh, you know, um, people of the opposite sex, yeah. you're going to have all these thoughts about them. But actually, they're not that important yet, because yeah. you've got more important things to focus on. That has probably not changed yeah, for yeah, yeah. thousands of years. And it's probably not going to anytime soon. So yeah, maybe that's a point where it experience is more relevant yeah for sure yeah i think it's all about like what relevant experience does this person kind of have um but yeah on the experience thing i feel like i just don't think the adults in my life have had enough like i'm going to use the word epistemic again but like epistemic humility about what they're saying i think look kids if you're a kid you kind of 
I don't know. By default, you probably kind of trust the things that someone older than you is telling you. Ali, I remember, used to make up all sorts of crap. And I just like, I'd gobble it up just because like he was my older brother or something. When I was like seven, he convinced me that he had a superpower of seeing germs on people's hands or something. And like, I was like, damn, all right. Wow. This is so cool, man. (laughs) (laughs) And I convinced you that you also had a superpower. (laughs) I can't remember what mine was. (laughs) Your power was fighting because you were a violent child. And that fed into your, into the story that you were telling yourself about your, your own skills. Uh, And I think that was partly why you bought it. Right. (laughs) And I convinced you that our cousin Zenob had the special power of being able to write essays very well (laughs) because that was what Nani was, was kept on telling you and me. She was like, oh, Zenob's really good at essay writing. Oh, damn. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think adults have a real responsibility for, uh, yeah, just having some epistemic humility and I think raising kids in a way to say, look, (laughs) you, you know, giving them an idea of like how confident you are in what you're saying and how much they should probably trust what you're saying on that note check out causal (laughs) yeah but yeah i mean i yeah i think it's uh yeah i think by default when you're young you'll just believe anything someone older than you tells you and that can have like bad consequences you to protect against that so when it comes to things like the lack of experience is it you're talking about testimony in court earlier yeah um is it possible that one of the reasons a child might not be taken so seriously in court is maybe they don't have the experience to know that here is a situation where it's of paramount importance to tell the truth compared to another situation where it may not be so important. It, you know, it may be fine to embellish the truth or use your imagination or make something up in another situation. I don't know. I think this comes back to like the sincerity that, yeah, you know, I said there were like two components to like, should you take this testimony sort of seriously? The first is like competence, like can this person actually ac- you know, accurately recall events or whatever? And then the second is like sincerity, like is this person going to be honest with me? You know, in these kind of, in like court cases and stuff, if it, you know, often these are, these are cases where a child has been abused by someone and the child is the only person who can testify against the adult. Yeah. Uh, it's basically like their word against, you know, the word word of person A against the word of person B, right? I think also in that sort of situation, there's absolutely no reason why a child would just invent something off the top of their right. head. Right, yeah, yeah. I, like, I'm inclined to think that by, by default, a kid would not just like lie about something. Uh, especially like if you ask them sort of in the, in the right way with the right incentives. For example, if a six-year-old is on the playground and the kids are having like a bragging contest, yeah, they might lie about like, I don't know, oh, my dad did this or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what kind of stuff uh, a kid might lie about. But yeah, I think like, yeah, in a courtroom context, I find it pretty uh, hard to believe that a kid would randomly decide to lie about that thing. I think they can appreciate what's going on. They can like actually recall things. Um Anyway, that was uh, that was uh, sort of some brief summary of uh, epistemic injustice and the child by Michael Burroughs and Deborah Tollefson. Uh, I'll, I'll try and link to a PDF in the show notes. Uh, I don't know if that's possible, but I guess we'll see. Um, yeah, thank you guys for listening to my ranting. Thank you for ranting. <laughs> All right, I guess we should read out a review and then call it a night. Let me just get up a review. I wonder if we just split this podcast into two two halves. Why would we do that? Because then we don't have to do one next week. Come on, mate. <laughs> How much time have we spent on it at the moment? This is an hour and 22 minutes. All right. This, uh... All right, I actually didn't understand this review. So I'm going to read it and maybe you guys will be able to shed some light. All right. 
This review is entitled Worth a Listen by someone in Great Britain. They say, new FY1s recently started on my hospital ward. The consultant asked one of them, are you Ali? To which the FY1 replied, no, I'm Tamor. <laughs> I was expecting Tamor to follow up with, this could be problematic. My mind was subtly blown. Keep up the good work from an EAU nurse. Can you make any sense of this? <laughs> I can tell you what the acronyms stand for, but I can't make any sense of what's going on. Okay. Well, it, it sounds like they probably just coincidentally heard somewhat, someone was named Tamor, which doesn't seem to be that common a name, I don't think. And, uh, and yeah, it's a common thing that you say on the podcast, like, oh, this is deeply problematic. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 maybe that's it. Oh, so wait, so is, this someone, is, is, is the person saying that he saw that he saw this situation play out? Or is the person saying that he is the yeah. one called, called Tamor? No, he saw the situation play out. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So he's, he's a new doctor working on the ward, the consultant he's who is the senior EAU doctor. He's nurse. Oh, he's the nurse. He's okay. the nurse. Oh, she. he's the nurse. And he saw the new, the new, and, the new doctor. Yeah, new FY1. Consultant being like, you know, is, you, Ali? is your name Ali? And the other guys know, uh, know it's actually Tamor. Right. Which yeah. is banter, like a funny coincidence. And then he's pointing out that, or she is pointing out that, uh, you know, he expected someone to follow, follow but this is deeply problematic uh, because okay. of the fact that he thought it was one name, but it actually wasn't the other. So it might have been, oh, oh you know, all Asian people look the same. Nice. There's a lot of, a lot of levels to this. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, I think that actually makes sense to the next. EAU often stands for Emergency Assessment Unit. <laughs> ah, good to know. All right, well. Thank you, EAU nurse, for the review. Thank you for the review. That's it for this week. See you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website if you're not using an iPhone. There's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah, if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly, that's fine as well. Tweet or DM us at N Overthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.